Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to the Los Angeles Times, on June 27th, the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California issued a scathing 104-page report on abuses in Orange County jails, which constitute the second-largest jail system in California. Abuses carried out by sheriff's deputies at the jail supposedly include assaulting inmates, instigating fights, and verbal abuse. The report, which was the culmination of a two-year investigation, also alleges that the holding cells for prisoners are filthy, smeared with human waste, and jammed with people sleeping on the floors. The ACLU's report was based on interviews with 120 inmates after their release and with incarcerated people. The ACLU said the investigation was the first to give the public a look at the county's jails from the perspective of the people who live inside of them. Truthout reports that women being detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement at the Adelanto Detention Facility in California have begun a hunger strike. Now entering its third week, the hunger strike, which began on June 14th, is a protest against poor living conditions at the detention facility and against policies that prevent women from contacting their families. The strikers' demands include better medical care, contact with their families, and an end to the abusive treatment of inmates by the guards. Atalanto, run by the GEO Group, is the largest private immigration detention facility in the U.S. and receives more than $40 million per year in funding from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The facility is also infamous among human rights advocates for its inhumane treatment and abuse of immigrants. Since March of this year, three people have died while in custody there. According to the Innocence Project, the governor of Texas recently signed legislation to prevent wrongful convictions. The first of its kind, the legislation provides the nation's most comprehensive protections against jailhouse informants who tend to be unreliable because they're offered benefits for providing testimony or information on a defendant. The offer of such benefits as money, leniency, or special privileges creates an incentive to lie. The use of jailhouse informants helped lead to nine wrongful convictions in Texas and is a major contributor to wrongful convictions nationally. The new legislation will enhance transparency and accountability in the jailhouse informant system by requiring county and district attorney offices to track information, including benefits given to jailhouse informants, in exchange for testimony. The information must be disclosed to defense attorneys and will allow them to raise issues of credibility in court so that judges and juries can more precisely evaluate jailhouse informant testimony. This week is the first part of our interview with Mark Cook. Mark served 24 years in prison for his participation in a bank robbery and jailbreak associated with the George Jackson Brigade in Seattle. He co-founded the Walla Walla chapter of the Black Panther Party, and Mark continued his activism throughout his captivity. In this segment, Mark talks about organizing in prison and shares inspiring stories of struggle and ingenuity from behind the prison walls. His account also describes a time when prisoners were much stronger and enjoyed better conditions. If conditions have gotten worse since the 1970s, it's not because the prison administrators have become more brutal or profit-hungry. These are constants. It's because the prisoners' movement was temporarily defeated. Mark reminds us of what's possible when prisoners organize and fight back strategically. To politicize prisoners inside it, pretty much none of them were. I had to start with basics and some were almost illiterate. So I used a a child's book. It's called The Little Red Hen. I don't know if anybody's ever read it. I mean, you, you ever read it. it, it the, the story goes that uh, uh, 
a little redhead found some corn seeds and decided to plant them. They said, who will help me plant these seeds? Talking to the farm animals, and of course the little pig says, ah, not me. And the little ducky says, not me. And the little goose says, not me. And their little baby chick says, we'll help you, mom. And so they plant the corn seeds. Well, the th thing goes on with the same thing. The, the other animals denying to help her, and the little chicks they sing, they would, you know, we'll help you weed it, you know, we'll help you pick it, we'll help you cook it. But who's going to help me eat it? I said, little pig. I said, the ducky wucky. I said, everybody. He says, no, you don't get to help. Only little chickies. So this was kind of a, my break into what socialism was about to these guys who were fairly illiterate. And plus, I made them read this book. After I, I read it, I, I did teach some of them to read and write. And it was a, almost a, a weekly reading till they got, got over it. And I took them on into another book, as a, which is a, a bit more complicated, which is a animal farm. And that took me probably a, a month to, to read through. But this is the way I politicized them, but I was also reading the Black Panther Party stuff, uh, the newspapers and uh, other brochure that they were bringing in, and our, and our direct orders to follow the 10 points of the Panther program. Now, following that is different than being outside, because we were Maoists and we were taught that Mao said, you struggle against the con oppressive conditions that affect you only. So there's oppressive conditions in prison that affected us. It did not affect other Panthers outside. Uh, well, that's how we worked inside, in other words. Well, one of the things was uh, employment. Everybody should have employment, is in demand. And we were working for prison industries and other little jobs around the prison, and we said, well, you know, that's not fair. We don't have a voice, no union, anything. So I figured out a way of starting a, a job or a, a product, what do you call it? Uh, a division inside where we could work by ourselves, be our own instructors, uh, uh, and develop, a, develop a, 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 an employment system that way. We weren't getting paid that much, but we were learning a, a trade. And what we chose was reupholstery. And within the institution, there's a lot of torn up furniture inside. So there was this uh, one uh, guy in downtown Walla Walla. This is in Washington State. Walla Walla, Walla was a town, had about maybe 15 to 20,000 people living there. Well, this one guy kept getting a DUI. He was a reupholster. And as part of community service, we got him to come into prison and teach us how to do uh, reupholstery. And he found these old uh, furniture parts that were came from a burned out house, you know, nothing left pretty much but, but the frame and the springs. And, and he showed us how to do hot glue on them, he taught us how to tie the springs, and he taught us to, to cover them with burlap, uh, cotton batting, and then with upholstery. And one of our prized uh, things was this old uh, antique uh, little settee. And like I said, he, he just picked, pulled it out of a burning house. We sold it for $500. And that's where our first wages came from. Uh, and as I, I was helping politicize the, these guys for Panther work, there were these Canadians, uh, well, you can call, call them immigrants if you want, but they were, you know, came down to get some money out of the uh, United States, bank robberies, et cetera. But they, they, were, they were pretty sharp. And this one, uh, his name was, uh, oh God, Eugene Ostergaard. He was a French Canadian. And they had, the prison had given him a permit to do curio work. In other words, be able to make jewelry boxes and cabinets and small stuff. As 
part of this, they, he got access to wood and mirrors. You know, he had these big mirrors and he had cut them down to size for his jewelry boxes. But they were re really big. So he came to me one day and said, you know, how about us starting kind of a revolution in here, an underground newspaper? I said, said, there's too many snitches in here, we'll, we'll never get away with it. He said, if only a few of us knew, knew, no. I said, there's always a snitch, snitch. He says, no. He said, they, they said, they trusted me. And they said, they trusted themselves. And they, they had guys who they'd been helping with escapes and stuff like that. And we can trust those guys too. So there was, ended up being six of us. It was uh, the two Canadians, one white American, he's out of, I was out of Yakima, or all. That's overall. There was a Mexican-American, Frank Raw. He was the smartest among all of us. He's the one that gave us all the, our ideas. And of course, there was me. And St. Peter was the escape, escape artist. And the reason we used in St. Peter because he was a real hustler. He could find anything we needed in the prison, uh, any, any parts of the prison. So the idea was to make a printing press based on a book that this one of these Canadians had read, uh, uh, Prisoners of War, who did this uh, es escape. And in order to do the escape, they had to make phony pr papers. So they had to print those papers. And so th this is what we did. We took the mirror, and it was larger than a size of regular uh, uh, type typing paper. And we framed it with a with the, the wood sticks he got for his uh, 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 curio work and uh, uh, what you call mask, masking tape to, the, to the, that. We got some uh, gelatin from the kitchen, and this was St. Peter's job, just get us some gelatin. And, and we boiled it down in these pitches. We had to make stingers. Stingers, I don't know if you know what they are. That's how you boil water in prison illegally. In those days, you, we could have razor blades. And what we did, take two razor blades and separate them with uh, wooden matchsticks, of course we could smoke, and tie them tight with uh, thread, things we sewed our buttons on and stuff with, real tight. We pulled a, a cord off a radio and a little alligator clip to the razor blades. Uh, filled a, a big glass jug with, with uh, water, dropped that in there and plugged it into a socket. It started boiling immediately. When it got going good, then we put the gelatin in, stir it up, dissolve it totally and then pour it in this little frame on the mirror. Okay, then we had our typewriters. We are allowed to have typewriters. Uh, we got these, uh, what do you call, ditto masters. These are things that were used for printing a long time ago in, in ditto machines, that there's carbon on one side and paper on the other side. So regularly you type on the, the white page and it comes out uh, negative on the other side. But we flipped it, flipped it over and typed on the carbon side so it come out the regular. And then we laid that on top of the gelatin after it cooled and pressed it out and smoothed it out. And it absorbed the ink off of this paper into the gelatin. Okay, then we took that off. Then we got this plain typing paper, laid it on that, smoothed it down, and peeled it off. There was a printing press. So we'll, it, it, and when we used up that side, because there was a glass underneath, another smooth surface, we just flip it over and do the process all over again, just do the typing and do the thing all over. So we did approximately 20% to cover the entire prison population. Distributing was fairly easy. We'd leave it in, you know, the lockers in the rec room or in the bleachers or in the bathrooms, but we couldn't let anybody know who was doing this. 
and every once in a while we drop one in front of the, the officer's control room and they pick one up. And they, they actually used to get them too because we had a lot of uh, snitching on the, the officers, things that they were doing in the prison or messing with each other's wives and stuff like that. And we prison, so they were anxious to get this newspaper too. But the main thing was, was get, get in tune with all of the prisoners and on the, be on the same page. They weren't allowed to know who we were. They wouldn't know it because with a, you know, a racial uh, tensions, we'd hit our races in there. They didn't know whether we were you know, straight or gay or whatever. But the, prince, the stuff we put in there, everybody identified with various rules. We even had this little uh, filler we put in called uh, logic is. And one of the logic is things was you weren't allowed to have your shirt tails out unless you were in the yard. You had to have them tucked in at all times when you're walking around the population. And you could untuck them when you got in your cells. And when we said uh, log logic is that we'd cause problems by having our shirt tails pulled out, and everybody agreed and understood that. Another thing was uh, we were, weren't allowed to grow sideburns, mustaches, or long hair. It had to be a quarter inch or shorter. And we says logic is, is, is having short hair so it won't cause uh, lice to, to form around the place. You know, we took a little thing about women's prisons, they never ever got their hair. Okay. So we had the little things like that, plus the articles about the uh, warden's wife who would get money to, for the blood that we donated. We'd donate blood, and she'd get half of the money, and the rest of the money would go to the inmates' fund. And we, we put that in there. Prisoners didn't know it, but we were able to get information like that. Prisoners had made to make a, a horse walk for the warden was using prisoners' labor to do that, and he wasn't supposed to do that. We got a brand new set of drums sent in from people outside for our band, but the warden took the drums for his daughters and gave us the old drums, you know. That didn't work. I mean, we are really getting him riled up in prison. So there's an instance that jumped up, separate from all of this, where they brought in a movie called uh, 100 Rifles, where they had uh, Jim Brown and Ra Raquel Welch, two uh, American uh, movie stars. Some of the white supremacists says, no, you can't show that movie in here. You're supposed to be able to choose a movie, and it was our time to choose a movie. We chose that one. No, you can't show that movie in here. And he said, we're going to see the movie, but we're not going to go to work. And I said, you're, you're not going to go to work. And so all the black prisoners locked up. We're only about 70% of the whole prison. We locked up and wouldn't come out to go to work. And the, the, the other prisoners saw us and, and said, hey, makes it look awful weak, you know. They're, they're demonstrating we got issues too. Let's stay in with and see how long this lasts. So the whole prison locked down. While it was locked down, we had prisoners who had to go from, we kind of advised the administration, go from cell block to cell block explaining what the demands were. But that gave us the opportunity, who were working with the bomb, to distribute our newsletter. We printed it. We could print it in the cell, you know. And we had it planned. If a, any officer was coming down the tier and might see it, we'd just flush it down the toilet. And this makes it a, a new printing press later on. The gelatin, while we had that, oh, that's how we got it flushed out. So for several, several months, this strike went on. The guys would not come out of their cells. Uh, and finally, the, the warden asked to have representative appear before him and collectively say what the demands were. We were given that opportunity and did it. And it, 
he was ordered by his bosses in the state capitol to get us to write our d demands down on paper. And we wanted kind of a, a constitution that everybody had to abide by, agreement. And he said, okay, we did that. So they tried to get, find some people in uh, prison to write this paper. And they were looking for kind of intellectuals. And accidentally, they ran across the people who wrote the bomb. Okay. <laughs> And so we know this thing ain't going to work, so we're going to play it. We said, we're going to ask for, shoot for the moon, you know. And we put all kinds of stuff in there, you know, almost bring dancing girls into prison, stuff like that. And, and the Olympia said, no, they're not going to get none of that. And he told the warden, send it back to them until they got to make something reasonable in there. The second one we wrote was pretty much the, the opposite, where we made things so strict, no prisoner would abide by it anyway. And... In our newsletter, the bomb, we wrote, wrote, sent it to the prison. Say, you guys got that constitution. Those guys who wrote your constitution sold you out. Okay, we're the guys who wrote the Take your the copies of the constitution before the mess hall and burn them. And they did. Went to the child, they made a pile there, bonfired all them constitutions. And so the warden had us write it again. And so we wrote it again. And what we wrote was a 50-50 uh, proposition that prison and administration would control all custody and security of the prison, and the prisoners would handle all treatment and recreation. They, they agreed to that. And so we called our prison organization the Resident Governmental Council, RGC. Now we picked those letters. We had to juggle them around. We had other words, but we finally found the words because we're going to pull off an escape, one of the grand escapes that prison never saw. One of the Canadians was in for a second degree murder. His name was Wayne Roberts. So we're going to get him out of prison. So we had him elected president of this resident governmental council, which gave him the authority to go to any cell block in the prison, plus the cell blocks on the other side of the walls, minimum security. So he could go out, go down, come back, and go out, come down, come back. And we'll see, okay, we got it. Now we need somebody to wait out there for him when he goes out to pick him up. So we had somebody waiting for an airplane out in the wheat fields. is a bush hopper airplane. So he went out one day went to plane and he never came back. He went to Canada. We had a plan that he wasn't going to come back. The Canadian government would not extradite him back into the United States. They gave him a nice job up at a place called uh, Spaghetti Factory. He'd be the manager up there. So that was our, our first big escape, you know, we, we planned. The next plan was to get ourselves out. I was doing a 350-year sentence on top of 320-year sentence terms. So I got 610 years to do. And they all had long sentences too, so we set this program up in our minds where everybody in the program had to have 15 years or more to get into the program. Now, all, all of this is political tra uh, training for me because I so far, first I got a jobs for us, now I'm, we're going to shoot for living quarters for ourselves, you know, reasonable housing, as it says in the Panther program. And so we go to the uh, uh, warden and say, hey, we want to set up this program where we do reupholstering, you know, outside of the, the prison building. You know it works inside. You've seen our work. And make this only prison project that is making any money, all the others are in the red. This is the only one that's making any money for the prison project. So they said, well, what do you want to do? We, said, we want the old women's quarters that's abandoned. They built a brand new women's prison in a city called Purdy, about 200 miles away. And they said, well, you think I'm just going to give you guys a, a prison? <laughs> and we explained, yeah, and also we have to have 15 years or more to get in the program. He said, you guys are really a nut of butter. 
So they talked to the people in Olympia, and Olympia said, well, if they can get the money, you, they can have it, which means we're not going to get it. They said, but what do we need? We need about $150,000. And we're six prisoners now. The only access we had was this ramp book. I don't know if you ever saw it. It has all the grants. They put it out every year, grants that the big companies and organizations have to give away so they can bring their income down to a tax level that they want to afford. And so we wrote to various organizations and finally the Ford Foundation and the Law Enforcement Blah Blah Agency and the Correctional Industries Agency, okay? So we wrote to them from grants and they said, we'll give you the money if you get us some matching services. So we went to the warden and we said, okay, if we got the money, could we have the building for matching funds? That the, it's worth more than $150,000, the building. And he says, <laughs> he told us, hell no. But he presented it to Olympia, and Olympia said, okay, they got the money. We said they got the money, they could have it. We picked the 15 prisoners that were going to go into this program. Of course, I got a lot of my Panthers in the program, but we spread it around. It was Frank Roth, of course, he was Mexican. There was Herb Stars. He was an Eskimo. And, you know, it was pretty level, much leveled out there. The deal was we had to hire our own employees to run the building. And we hired a retired guard. And all he had to do is come up and sit on the porch in a chair and three times a day call in and say there's 15 prisoners still here. <laughs> that's, that's the only job he had. The door wasn't locked or anything. And this was part of our, our program. We told him, if anybody rent runs off, the program's over and done with. And, you know, we all want this program. There's not going to be any locked doors. He had, the board had to go through Olympia every time we made these demands, and we got it granted every time. We had the guy who taught us how to do the furniture. He got us the first bunch of furniture to work on. We picked our salesperson out of the group we had. One guy, he's also a Canadian immigrant. His name is Roger Braithwaite. In fact, his, some relative of his ran the prison system up in Canada. <laughs> so... We had him for sales. We were able to get him, send him downtown to, to the local uh, county and the federal agencies and ask him for work, to work on their furniture. And they said, well, we'd have to bid on it, just like everybody else. So I set up this, this bidding system, which is really kind of weird, and I used it later on when I got out, but it was figuring out what are the materials that go into one yard of putting a, a piece of furniture together. One yard amounts to a, a uh, easy chair you know, a stuffed chair, that's, that's the measurement. And so I f figured that out and said, for every yard we do, we'll just multiply this, this figure. And so we put our bid in for something and figured out how much it's gonna cost us to, to uh, cover it. Double the price of that, and that's how much the agency's gonna have to pay. We outbid everybody in the area, all right. So we, we're doing this work. We needed to deliver it. And so out of our funds, we bought a, 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 a box truck, you know, delivery van, one of those big ones out GMC. We got a station wagon for our, do, go out and do our sales. I mean, we're, we're guys in prison yeah. doing time. My mandatory minimum was 15 years, that's why we set it there. And we're really figuring that, you know, this is going to be so, so good. We're going out on, you know, sales trips, delivering and stuff. This is going to be a great escape. But we didn't know how great it was going to be. They didn't know we were planning an escape, and eventually they let us all go. But anyways, well, what happened? Before the program was over, they brought the governor of the state down to look at our program. 
and he has a feather in the warden's cap. He didn't figure this was going to happen, but he was looking better than any prison in the United States at this time. We were paying ourselves with the highest paid prisoners in, in the United States. So the governor came down and he was looking at the program and the guy who we used for doing our sales, the Roger Braithwaite, this guy, he, we had problems, well, good problems with him, but we had problems with him. He walked around like he is the mayor. And so he's telling the governor, this guy, he's pointing to me, this guy, he, he helped put this pr program together. It wouldn't work without him. You gotta get him out of here and into a halfway house. I got a minimum sentence of 15 years. And I know this ain't, ain't gonna happen. And the warden says, get him to a halfway house. So they sent me to Seattle, went to a halfway house. I got all my little goodies and stuff. It was a, we had to hire these a sociologists and a psychologist to work with. And they're the ones that drove me up there, you know. And I got to the halfway house. People didn't know who I was or what I was doing there. And I said, well, I'll just go on home. He said, no, you won't. You can stay here till we find out what's going on. So they kept me there and they finally found out the papers came in late and said, yeah. And so I stayed at this halfway house. While I was in the halfway house, I was going to Seattle Community College. There's a work release program. And the money I got from there paid for my halfway house and all my little stuff, you know. They also gave me, a, I think it was an hour or a two hour pass every day to walk to and from the college and do whatever else I wanted. And so what I did, I started walking around and finding various prison programs. The first one I found was right there in the, in the college. It was a, uh, one of the student union programs as a prisoner. And I met several women, three of them, who became in, kind of involved later on <laughs> in our politics. But they were also doing work for the, the women in Purdy, called Women Out Now. This is Bo Brown and Therese Coupe. They became fairly famous as activists in, in the area. They were the only ones doing a prison program. I found the uh, prisoner union had Ed Mead, Bruce Seidel, and a guy named John Sherman. All three of those became members of the brigade later on. But what I wanted to do was put together a yearly forum of all the prison activist groups in the area, in Seattle, basically. And we'd hold up a forum. And we'd try and get people from the prisons and uh, Department of Corrections, et cetera, to come to these programs. I'm in, still in the halfway house now. They all agreed. I started hitting the churches and places like uh, American Friends Service Committee. And they started writing out checks for us to help us along with this thing. And I'm in the halfway house with these checks. They come in the mail. And there's kind of a small censorship. When the mail comes in, they have to cut it open. They looked at these checks, and I told them what I was doing. They said, it's cool, you know. Uh, we could go to call it Convention 72. We did a little brochure, kind of demanding the right to vote for prisoners, the right to have uh, decent working conditions within all the prisons and a better salary. And a, a lot of the things that prisoners inside needed. Also, uh, looking out for prisoners who are on parole. Don't be so restrictive with the paroles. It did work out. We were able to find a place to hold this thing. We also were able to get prisoners, the department to send prisoners out from the prisons to this convention. Some with prison guards, some were given what they call the furloughs. We, there was uh, attorneys who came. One was the dean of law at the University of Washington. He was our keynote, keynote speaker, so he was right in tune with all the issues that we were raising. There was a psychiatrist, a radio psychiatrist, kind of like this fool who's on the TV now, there's some pretty high profile people come to this thing. I'm still in the halfway house, well, I've got six more months to, to go. And so our first place, we, we gave uh, the El Centro de la Raza, it's the uh, Mexican uh, center in Seattle. We gave $500 to use their facility for our, our first uh, program. 
they agreed. Uh, and at the program, it was we had pretty scheduled, pretty much like you had here, but our schedule was a little tighter than yours was. We put a stopwatch on everybody. We're going through a program, and this one guy, communist, came in, and he said, all oh, you bourgeois people running this thing, all you can do is cause problems for the prisoners, you know. He, he, he didn't really know that prisoners, I was a prisoner putting this thing on. I told him, look, why don't you just quiet down, I'll give you a spot to speak on here. He's going to take my spot. And his name happened to be Ed Mead. We became friends after that. <laughs> but at this time, well, he got up and he did this spiel, pretty much the old communist rhetoric from back in the 1918 and 20s and stuff like that. And people didn't know the faintest about the bourgeois, you know, petty bourgeois and uh, proletariat. They, had, they couldn't follow what he was doing, you know. Uh, but I let him have his spiel. And later on, I told him what, what his problem was, you know. But anyways, he was, they were the head of the uh, prisoner union. So that was uh, the prison representative. So that was our first convention. I, I finished my uh, one year in, at a workway, a halfway house. And I was the longest any prisoner had been kept in a halfway house. They weighed my mandatory 15-year sentence and out on the streets that went. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.